The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. O Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Amen. John Wesley who was an Anglican priest before he went his own way and inadvertently started the Methodist Church. <laughs> said this in the 18th century about wealth. It is no more sinful to be rich than to be poor, but it is dangerous beyond expression. Therefore, I remind all of you that are of this number, that have the conveniences of life and something over, that ye walk upon slippery ground. Ye continually tread on snares and deaths. Ye are every moment on the verge of hell. You wouldn't be surprised to hear that these words come from Wesley's commentary on this passage from the gospel this morning. And it would seem that if we follow the life of the anonymous rich man in this passage, Wesley would be right. Hell is waiting for the wealthy. In the succinct bio that we get here in the gospel, this man lives a life of luxury. He eats the best food. He wears the best clothes. Apparently, he has his own gate around his house, precursor to our gated communities. And there was a beggar at that gate 
named Lazarus. And the rich man paid him no mind, though even the dogs in the community acknowledged at least Lazarus' existence. And they both die, and the rich man goes down to the fires of Hades, and the poor man, the beggar, Lazarus, is carried up by angels into the very bosom of Abraham. And a great chasm now separates them, and nothing that the rich man can do can change his situation. The promise of flames in Hades would seem a pretty good warning against the dangers of being wealthy. Now, while it's clear to us, probably, that the rich man gets his just desserts, the story would have contained some surprises for Jesus' first century listeners. And that is, in the first century, wealth was considered a sign of divine favor. You've been doing something right if you're rich. God is blessing you. And if you were poor, conversely, you've probably done something wrong. It was a sign of divine disfavor. You must have done something. So why then, in this story, does the rich man end up in Hades? Because he allowed his wealth to separate him from his fellow human beings. Not once, not once, did the rich man acknowledge the humanity of Lazarus. Only after his death does the rich man even acknowledge that Lazarus existed. And even then, he only talks to him through Abraham, not directly. And even then, it's just to have him be a gopher. He wants Lazarus as a tool to serve his selfish desires. And even as he's perishing, even as he's perishing, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Do we get it? It is no more sinful to be rich than to be poor, but it is dangerous beyond expression. Paul points to some of the dangers in his letter to Timothy this morning. He writes that the eagerness to be rich can lead to ruin and destruction. He writes that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A famous expression often misquoted. It's the love of money, not money itself. That is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the only root of evil. Paul writes that there is also the temptation to haughtiness, to entitlement. But just as dangerous as wealth is to our everlasting souls, Paul is clear that it also provides us with great great opportunity. Paul is clear that we have the opportunity, we have the chance to be generous, to be gracious, to be grateful, and simply put, to share. And this sharing benefits not only the whole community, but even one's own soul. I think that's what Paul is driving at when he says that those who are generous take hold of the life that really is life. The life that really is life. That's what our soul 
longs for. That part of us that is compassionate, that is generous, that's merciful, that is courageous. That part of who we are, our soul, is fed when we are generous. Apparently, scientifically, neurologically speaking, there is also benefit to generosity. Some of you may know the writer Natalie Anger. I just was introduced to her writing this week. She was writing in the New York Times a few years ago about the brain and about some discoveries that neuroscientists came up with when they were studying the brain in relationship to generosity. And she writes this. Hard as it may be to believe in these days of infectious greed and savers unsheathed, Scientists have discovered that the small, brave act of cooperating with another person, of choosing trust over cynicism, of choosing generosity over selfishness, makes the brain light up with quiet joy. You know how these brain scans work, right? They, they have some kind of dye, I think, or something that goes into your brain, or they have some way of, of watching your brain when it's working. And when somebody does something like this, a little portion of it lights up on the screen. <laughs> so clearly, there is, I guess what the scientists call, a pleasure center for cooperation and for trust and for generosity. It's hardwired into us, as Professor McDar put it this morning in his talk. Now, there's also an understandable resistance to activating this pleasure center in the brain because there are other centers in the brain that are also hardwired that register fear and anxiety. And they are also, as we all know, extremely powerful. Those centers of fear and anxiety. We are, without a doubt, living in uncertain times, anxious times. Our economic and political futures are far from clear and fear and anger and anxiety are heavy in the air. I don't need to remind you of that. Just the other day, I met a childless, single, 20 or 30 something man in my neighborhood. And this is very rare. Childless, single people, young in my neighborhood are like Hensi. <laughs> Well, he was there because he just moved back to live with his mother because his job had been cut in Boston and he had nowhere else to go. It's not just the young, though, of course, that are vulnerable. It's not just the old that are vulnerable. We're all vulnerable in one way or another. All of us, either to being taken advantage of, our fears being taken advantage of, our angers being taken advantage of, or our actual physical well-being in terms of our savings, in terms of paying the bills, many of us are in some way vulnerable. Jeremiah wrote from a very vulnerable place. He was under house arrest in the court of King Zedekiah in Jerusalem, and the Babylonian army lay encamped around Jerusalem just waiting to flatten it. They had already laid waste 
to everything north of Jerusalem. They were just biding their time. And of all things, God tells Jeremiah to buy a piece of land ten miles northeast of Jerusalem, already occupied by the Babylonian army. It's one thing to buy when the market is low. (laughs) Here's a market about to be destroyed. But rather than hunker down, Jeremiah ponies up. His trust and his hope in God are so strong that he buys that piece of land anyway. His heart is so set, is so trusting, that even though appearances to the contrary, he's going to trust in that hope. And it happens that although Jerusalem was destroyed, it was rebuilt after Jeremiah's time. And there was trading again. There were vineyards. Business and prosperity on that land returned. Now, I don't know exactly what this story or these stories this morning might mean for us here at Trinity. I I don't know exactly, but it might mean that we're invited to trust God in the face of fear and anger and anxiety. It might mean that we can lessen the dangerousness of our wealth by letting go of some of it. It may mean that by letting go of some of it, we can enhance our connections to the other people around us, not be isolated like the rich man was from Lazarus. It may be, just may be, that we can escape the danger and the fear that often attends to our wealth and possessions as we try to protect them and protect ourselves. Paul is so very clear on this. Paul reminds us that God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Not just that God provides, gives us just what we need. He says that earlier in the passage. Of course, he gives us, we hope he gives us, we trust he gives us food and clothing. And if we have that, we'll be happy. It's not just that. Paul says God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. And not just sustenance here. Paul says everything for our enjoyment. Not just getting by. Perhaps these stories invite us to trust that we have what we need, that we have what we need for enjoyment, that we have what we need to share and share generously. Amen.